If you pick up any psychology book today on any college campus, you're certain to read somewhere along the line or here in class the story of Catherine Kitty Genovese. Genovese was a 28-year-old woman brutally murdered outside of her Queen's apartment in New York City, March 13, 1964. It has been decades since her death, but events that surrounded her death are still being analyzed and taught by sociologists and psychologists, criminologists all over the world. It was three in the morning. Kitty was walking home from her job as a bartender. A man later identified as Winston Mosley emerged from the shadows and attacked her with a knife. She screamed out, Oh my God, he stabbed me. Someone please help me. Lights came on in the apartment building across the street. Windows opened A male voice called out in the dark, leave that girl alone, and Mosley slipped off into the darkness. The windows closed, the lights went out, and everything was quiet again. Then the assailant returned and began stabbing Genovese again, and again she cried out, and again windows opened and lights came on and voices called from the darkness. Winston Mosley once again slipped into the shadows. There were three separate attacks over the space of a half an hour in three different locations, and no one intervened. When police finally arrived and found Kitty's body being cradled by a 70-year-old grandmother who had been the one neighbor to respond, they began interviewing people in the apartment complex. Some were afraid to intervene. Others said that they were too tired to really understand what was happening. But the most common response was, I did not want to get involved. Dr. John Darley properly calls this the bystander effect. The greater the number of people who witness a person in need, the less likely an observer will take action. And those who do take action often act on whether or not they feel the person in trouble deserves Just because you live in close proximity to someone does not necessarily mean that you are his or her neighbor. You could be only a bystander, a spectator, possibly even an accomplice, complicit in someone else's pain. The neighbor is not the one who lives next door. It's the one who acts in love. Love, not the Valentine's sense of love. Mushy emotional, romantic. Love as in doing for others what you would have done for yourself. Love as in looking out for the best interest of others, especially when that other is someone in need. I've been working my way through a series of talks on the life of Jesus. We've had a study on Wednesday evenings and this accompanying series on Sunday mornings. And we arrive today at what is known as the Great Journey to Jerusalem. It lasts only a few months in Jesus' life, and Luke is the one who catalogs it most accurately and in detail. Jesus leaves Galilee. He leaves home, his home region, never to return. He winds his way south through the Jordan River Valley. Sometimes he's on one side of the river, sometimes he's on the other. He is preaching, teaching, healing as usual. But on this journey, Jesus picks up his most famous rhetorical device, his most employed means of communication, and it is the parable, the story, 
19 stories he tells on the way to Jerusalem. And for Jesus, he never uses the story, as we often do, to help the truth go down a little easier. My mother, because I refused to swallow horse pills and I was a sickly child, my mother would crush up the pill and put it in a spoon and coat it with sugar and a dab of milk on top and make this little paste. It's so sweet and tasty, it'll go right down. And that's how I took my medicine. And sometimes we will tell a story or an illustration just to make the truth a little sweeter, to make it a little easier to go down. Jesus never uses a story like that. For Jesus, the story is the medicine. For Jesus, the parable is what is potent. He's not illustrating. He is telling the truth with all of these great stories. And here, the first story he tells on the way to Jerusalem is probably the greatest story ever told. With the prodigal son, Jesus' most famous story The parable of the Good Samaritan. A religious leader comes to Jesus with a question. If loving God and loving my neighbor is what is required, because he'd already asked Jesus one question. Did you catch it when Russ was reading? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, how do you read it? Great teacher right there. How do you read it? And he answers properly. Love God with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's right. Do this. You will live. And then he says, okay, but who is my neighbor? He's not looking to help someone. He's looking to draw a circle. How far do I have to go to define my neighbors? That's my neighbor, but this one over here is not. And Jesus really doesn't answer the question, Who is my neighbor? So much as he answers the question, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And this story, the prodigal son, is his answer. And it is an unexpected, revolutionary, boundary-breaking answer that he gives. The story begins with an unfortunate traveler. There he is on our screen. Poor guy. He is traveling the Jericho Road. As Jesus tells the story, he is coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And that is proper. It is a 3,000 foot fall from Jerusalem on the ridge to Jericho at the bottom of the Rift Valley. 17 miles of twists and turns. So Jesus says he's going down this road. It's a mountain billy goat road. No offense, Billy. Billy goat road. And that's dangerous enough, but it was infamously dangerous because of all the bandits and all of the thieves that were waiting in the rocks to take over the caravans and the individual travelers. The church father Jerome in in the 300s lived in Bethlehem where he was working on the Latin translation of the Bible, the very first one, would become known as the Vulgate. And he was working there and he said, in the 300s, that it was still so dangerous, it was called the bloody way, the bloody road. As I said in the early service, much like Highway 98 was called before they four-laned it. Those of you who have lived here a long time, remember, they called it bloody 98 because of so many accidents, so much bloodshed on the road. 
That's the image of the Jericho Road. A thousand years after this story was told, the Knights Templars, you've heard of them in recent years, were stationed, organized and stationed on this road for the first time to protect the pilgrims and the travelers that were making this journey into and out of Jerusalem. And sure enough, in the telling of Jesus' story, so true to context, this traveler gets in trouble. He is robbed, he is beaten, and he is left for dead. And thus begins two case studies in in the bystander effect. The first case involves a priest. The second a temple assistant, or what some translations call a Levite. Again, to the context, the priest and the temple assistant are religious professionals of Jesus' day. Think of the priest as a priest in a church today or as a pastor. Think of the temple assistant as an associate, the minister of music. That's what the Levites did. They led the music at the temple. So these are, to use our terms today, good church people. They are coming from church, on their way home even, as Jesus puts them in the story. Now remember, who asked the question that sparked this story in the first place? A religious leader, a priest, a pastor, a Levite, we don't know exactly. But it's a professional religious person asked this question, and he must be thrilled when they get to this part of the story because Jesus has put them, him, in the story. This is great until they get to the punchline. The religious professionals are not heroes in this story, they are villains. They refuse to intervene. They see this guy beaten on the side of the road, they see him, the text is clear. Not, oh, I didn't see you laying there. They see him and intentionally pass by on the other side. They treat him like roadkill, like something that stinks, like something that smells. And they put distance between them. Why? We know why. Because they were doing what was right. In Leviticus 21, Numbers 19, the law is clear. If you are a temple worker, if you are a religious professional, you do not lay your hands on a dead body. You become ceremonial and religiously unclean. So these guys see this guy on the side of the road. They realize he's at the point of death. And the calculation in their mind is this. If I get involved with him and he dies in my hands... I get disqualified on my next term for the service at the temple. It's like in a hockey game. To the penalty box, you go. And you've got to sit there until the the days of purification expire. Then you can come back to work. They are doing what is pure. They are doing what is moral. They are doing what is the letter of the law. And in the process, they are ignoring mercy. For someone who needs it. And then another twist. And it's not so much an unexpected turn like one of those crooks in the road. It's a dagger right through the heart of Jesus' listeners. Verse 33. Then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. All the listeners in the room look at each other and say, a what? 
Who? Did, did, he, did, did he say Samaritan? And that's exactly what he said. Jesus has pulled the pen on a social grenade and lobbed it into the room. And people don't know whether to run or to stay because it is such a radical proposition that Jesus has made. Samaritans were the outcasts of Jewish society. They were racially, ethnically, religiously untouchable. You did not associate with the Samaritan. They were on the bottom rung of the caste system. They were prohibited. No one socialized with a Samaritan. And Jesus takes this pariah of society and makes him the hero as the preachers are the villains. I don't know if that's exactly how you win friends and influence people. Jesus might as well have shown up in Northern Ireland in the 70s at an IRA meeting and banged on and on about the goodness of a good English Protestant. He might as well have shown up at a Klan rally in the 1960s in the Deep South to tell everyone there how great Martin Luther King Jr. was. It is that radical of a story. And they just don't know what to do. Or maybe Jesus would tell the story like this in 21st century America. A certain man was going down from Bainbridge, Georgia to Tallahassee, Florida. Along the way, he had a flat tire, and while stranded on the side of the road, he was robbed, his car was stolen, he was shot and left for dead. A Baptist pastor, on his way home from the Southern Baptist Convention meeting, saw the man. But he had a report to deliver to his congregation about the virtuous resolutions passed at the meeting he had just attended, and an important sermon to preach about our culture's deteriorating family values. And besides that, his children were in the car, so he didn't stop. A few minutes later, a bishop of the Methodist church came driving by. A successful woman, she sat on the board of Focus on the Family, the National Association of Evangelicals Concerned Women for America. Considering the scene before her, she concluded that her work in these organizations must continue. It was the only way to stop such meaningless violence, violence that was likely perpetrated by gangs of teenagers who were the products of broken homes without the proper Judeo-Christian guidance. She was a mile past the scene before she called 911. And then a third traveler came upon the victim, a farm worker from the blueberry bushes in the onion fields of South Georgia, a migrant, a Guatemalan, an illegal alien. He sees the shooting victim and his heart is broken with compassion. He steers his car to the side of the road, jumps out with a first aid kit and a bottle of water. He triages the wounds the best that he can, loads the man into the back seat of his car and drives as quickly as he can to Tallahassee Memorial Hospital. He checks the victim in, leaves a handful of cash with the registrar and at great risk leaves his name and number and says, I'll pick him up later when he's well if no one else comes for him. Now I ask you the question of Jesus. Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked? Well, you can't do that. You can't change the story like that. My version of the story is not as radical as Jesus' version of the story. 
When first told, Jesus was tendering as radical a possibility conceivable by the religious community. Scandalously radical. It was nothing less than heresy. Oddball, outcast, redneck, white trash, squatter, albino, gook, gangster, wetback, towelhead. Whatever name we have for the group that we would marginalize, the Jews had one name, Samaritan. And Jesus takes this outcast and He is at the center of showing and displaying the love of God and love of neighbor. Look, this is not a story about defining the limits of your neighborhood. It's not a story that makes you stop and pick up a hitchhiker, because that's what a good Samaritan would do, no. It's not a story even about the goodness of a Samaritan or the apathy of a religious person. It's a story about the supremacy of love. Love that breaks all boundaries, that tears down all of our religious walls. It's about love that helps good church folks like us see that keeping the rules are important, but not at the expense of justice and mercy for those who need it. Church people always want to do what's right. We always want to be right. More importantly, what Jesus is teaching us, the priority is that we love. That's the rightness that Jesus is always inviting us to. It was Martin Luther 500 years ago who stood before the papal commission who was investigating his radical beliefs and he defended himself by saying this, Here I stand. I can do no other. And we Protestants have been standing up and taking stands ever since. We want people to know what we believe. And more importantly, we want them to believe the way we believe, right? We're going to be right. We're going to be orthodox. We're going to take a stand. And the older I get, I find that I take fewer stands because the greatest orthodoxy and the greatest truth is that we must love God with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. There is nothing else, really. It comes down to that. That God's nature is love. Not that God shows love. Not that God is capable of displaying love. God by nature is love. And that's the love in Christ that He is trying to implant in all of our hearts. Now, not everyone agrees with me on this, and I understand that. It's not unlike the lady who asked Cindy, my wife, one time. It was in a beauty shop. Beauty shop talk. Well, barbershop talk for that matter. She was in the beauty shop and they found out that Cindy was married to a pastor and the lady said, uh, well, what kind, of, what kind of preacher is he? I really don't know what that means. I mean, I really, you know, people are always trying to, people are always trying to put people in a category, right? What kind, of, what kind of preacher is he? And I did not coach her. I was not there. I did not provide the answer for her. But she can put it on my tombstone. She said, he is a preacher that talks about the grace and love of God. And the woman did this. 
And then she said, well, I guess that's okay. Just be sure he doesn't talk too much about God's love. People don't need to hear about it all the time. We need to hear it relentlessly, daily. We need to practice it relentlessly, daily. My theological beliefs might be important. Where I stand on some issues might mean something. But all my beliefs are worthless, worthless, if my first and consuming passion is not the boundary-breaking, world-turning, door-opening, wound-binding, soul-redeeming, shame-defeating, all-embracing love of God and neighbor. For if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and if I have faith so as I could remove mountains, if I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Thus, here is the choice put before us by Jesus on the Jericho Road. We can tirelessly work to prove how right we are about so many, many things and keep our holy distance from those situations and people that we deem out of bounds. Or we can choose to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In the telling of this story, Jesus has provided us with the correct answer. 